The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. In 2019, New York Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez introduced the Green New Deal in Congress, an ambitious package of spending estimated cost either trillions or perhaps tens of trillions of dollars, depending on the estimate. When asked how the United States could possibly afford all of this spending, AOC referenced something called modern monetary theory as suggesting that our government could afford the Green New Deal if we really wanted to go forward with it. For many people interested in the policy debates in our country, this is probably the first time they heard reference to this thing called MMT, which had previously been a relatively obscure academic theory. Proponents of MMT suggest that our nation, including, uh, in, our, including mainstream economists, have really been thinking about money and borrowing incorrectly consequently posing, uh, imposing an artificial constraint on ourselves. What are the elements of this theory? Are they really new? And do they truly offer a radically new way to finance enormous amounts of government spending without imposing crushing taxes on everyone? Well, macroeconomics and monetary theory are not my areas of expertise within economics. So I've asked a, a noted macroeconomist to come on the show today and help enlighten us. Dr. Alex Salter is the Georgie G. Snyder Professor of Economics at Texas Tech Institute, uh, University, I'm sorry, where he's also affiliated with the Free Market Institute. Dr. Salter earned a PhD in economics from George Mason, and he's published over 70 articles, uh, academic articles, and co-authored a book called The Money, Money and the Rule of Law. In addition to his extensive research on money and macroeconomics, he also writes extensively for popular publications on these topics, like the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Reason, and the Dallas Morning News. So he should be able to bring both an academic and a, a popular perspective to, to these uh, complicated topics. Well, welcome to the eConversations, Alex, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure. If you want to tell us a little bit about your background before we get started with this uh, topic. Sure. Uh, I've been interested in economics for a good long while. I did my undergraduate studies in economics and math at Occidental College, which is in uh, Los Angeles. As you said, I went to George Mason University in Northern Virginia for graduate school. I spent a year after that teaching at a liberal arts school called Berry College in Northern Georgia. And then I went from there to Texas Tech University. So I've been doing a little bit of economics here, there, and uh, everywhere in between. And I've been interested in macroeconomics since my earliest days, sort of the, the wealth and poverty of nations on the one hand and the causes and consequences of business cycles on the mm -hmm. other hand. Those are two, the two areas that really interest me. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to write my dissertation on money and banking under a great professor, uh, Dr. Lawrence White, one of the world's leading experts on alternative currency systems and free banking systems. And under his guidance, I was really able to turn this passion into a dedicated research program that's, uh, that served me well. And uh, it, when mentioned again, you uh, co-authored this book, uh, Money and the Rule of Law, with uh, Dan Smith, our former, my former colleague here at, at Troy. 
and uh, Pete Becky, and, and we had Dan Smith on the show a, a little while ago talk about this book. So we're not we're not going to have you talk about your book here today, but everybody should go back and watch that uh, episode of E Conversations and, and buy your book as well. So let's absolutely buy the book. So let's get into uh, this uh, thing, uh, modern monetary theory (MMT), and. Um, you know, just I want to make sure everybody understands you're an expert on money and banking, but you're not a proponent of MMT. So we're going to start by having you talk, explain to us some of the elements of this uh, this approach towards economics and, and uh, I guess government spending. Okay, so what what's uh, what what does MMT involve? As you said, MMT stands for Modern Monetary Theory. Uh, I think it was Voltaire who said, uh, he cracked a joke once about the Holy Roman Empire, who said it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Well, modern monetary theory is not modern, it's not really about money, and it's not an economic theory. So in that spirit, it's, uh, it's an unfortunately named policy grab bag that tries to sell itself as a way of describing how the macro economy works, but really is more of a guidebook for policymakers who want to significantly expand the role of the public sector in the economy. And we can debate whether the role of the public sector in the economy is a good thing or a bad thing, but strictly speaking, modern monetary theory doesn't qualify as an economic theory because it doesn't try and tell us how the economy works. It doesn't really help us make any new predictions about economic variables we care about, and it doesn't teach us anything about the causal relationships amongst economic variables we care about. Perhaps the most famous part of MMT, the one with which many people are familiar, is this claim that any country that controls its own fiat currency, its own paper money, cannot default on its debt obligations because it can always just print up money and pay back bondholders if we're a little bit short in terms of if we don't have the tax revenue. So taking that insight and running with it, advocates of MMT say that we should actually finance the government this way. We shouldn't finance the government using taxes. We should finance the government by printing money. And then that will free up fiscal policy, tax policy, to do things like redistribute resources, uh, control inflation, create another demand for dollars and dollar-denominated liabilities so that the public will continue to do uh, to hold and pay dollars, do these other supporting things. And supposedly mm -hmm. this will enable the government to, to really step up its fight against unemployment, idle resources, and really get the economy firing on all cylinders. Uh, those are the claims, and I think that if you evaluate them a little more critically, I think a lot of this falls apart pretty quickly. So, so let's start with this uh, first claim, because like, obviously, you know, the uh, federal government, even back in, before the pandemic, the, the federal government was nearly uh, twenty trillion dollars in debt, and so it's a long-standing refrain. You know, anyone is going to propose ambitious new spending to say, well, how can we possibly uh, afford it? You know, we either need to raise taxes, but that doesn't seem to be all that popular, or what co Congress clearly ha has relied on for, for years is a lot of deficit spending. And so, you know, uh, it's a, the natural response would be people, we were already so much in debt, there's, there's no way we could possibly take on a whole bunch, uh, trillions of dollars of additional debt to pay for something like the Green New Deal. But is MMT is suggesting we don't have to worry about uh, borrowing too much in some in some sense, right? That's right. MMT basically says the deficit doesn't matter. In fact, I think Stephanie Kelton's book is even titled The Deficit Myth, mm -hmm. the idea that we're in some way constrained by the amount of money that the federal government can either raise via direct taxation or borrow in bond markets. 
What makes up the difference? The printing presses, right? The idea would be that you get the Federal Reserve to engage in expansionary open market purchases to finance the difference between this, basically print up dollar bills and get them into the economy, and then that can be used to purchase whatever Uncle Sam wants to purchase. And this is really a generalizable model to, to some extent. If your country has a central bank and that central bank is the only issuer of your country's money, then you have this ability. Uh, mm -hmm. The countries that are part of the Eurozone don't necessarily have this ability because right. they all have a common currency that's controlled by the European Central Bank, which is a transnational institution. So this isn't really something that Germany could do or France could do or Italy could do, but it is something that the United States could do in theory. Mm -hmm. and, and then another component of this is that uh, the government has to be borrowing um, in its own currency, the, 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 its debt has to be denominated in its own currency because a country like Venezuela and others, uh, Latin American countries are heavily indebted, but they're not borrowing in their own currencies. They're, they're, those are typically, I think, you know, dollar denominated uh, uh, loans that they've taken out from uh, banks across the world or uh, uh, things like the World Bank, right? That's right. When you actually borrow the resources from the bond market, it has to be payable in the nominal currency that your central bank controls. So we couldn't do this, for example, if someone snapped their fingers and we went on a Bitcoin standard, for example. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do it if we went back to a gold standard or tied the dollar to any underlying commodity that mm -hmm. obligated the government to redeem its paper money for that commodity at a pre-specified rate. But as long as we've got fiat money and as long as we contract in that fiat money, then you could do it. Now, you mentioned that in some ways uh, MMT is not really uh, modern or, or new. And, and, and in the uh, idea that the, the government's not going to, the federal government isn't actually going to default on, on its debt, even though it could get very large, isn't really particularly new. I remember a book that uh, James Buchanan and Richard Wagner, uh, professors at George Mason, when, when I was in grad school there, wrote in the 1970s, uh, Democracy and Deficit, where they actually said, yeah, I mean, you know, we're not going to default on the debt. The danger was that we would use money creation to pay for it, which is essentially what, what uh, MMTs come around to, right? I think that that's a correct description of the, the politics of treating the debt. To the extent that you're worried about default on the one hand versus filling the gap with money printing on the other, option two is way more likely in the current political scenario. The, the political consequences of, of the United States defaulting on its debt would be enormous. Uh, for good or ill, treasury obligations are the backbone of the global financial system and demand for dollar denominated securities continues to be very strong, right? Just look at the historically low interest rates right now which, which, at which Uncle Sam can borrow. Uh, that being said, as an historical note, it's, it's important to note that Uncle Sam in its past has defaulted a bunch of times on its debt, right? And depending on what you classify as a default over the course of the United States history, the U.S. has defaulted sometime between, I think it's four and seven times, mm -hmm. uh, depending on what you actually classify as a default, right? When FDR changed the gold content of the dollar to $20.67 per ounce of gold to $35 an ounce of gold, there are a whole bunch of people who lent the United States government money Right, those contracts were denominated in dollars, and that was written under the assumption that an ounce, a dollar, was worth so much gold. Mm -hmm. But then, after FDR's executive order, all of a sudden, a dollar is worth less gold. So, is is that a default? Many economists would say yes. You're you're basically paying back a different uh, obligation than the one that you voluntarily agreed to get. So, depending on whether you count those as defaults or not, 
Uh, it has happened in U.S. history, and we can hope it doesn't happen again, but it's always a possibility. And then another issue in terms of like whether you can borrow in your own currency, uh, th that's not like given by the uh, economic gods. That's a, that's a function of markets, isn't it? And I mean, like if, so, if somebody wants to lend to the U.S. Uh, to the federal government, they may actually demand that that uh, that be denominated in, in, in Chinese, uh, in Japanese yen or, or, or Chinese currency or Bitcoin or something like that, right? They could do that. They could ask for that. The question is, could they actually get that? And as you noted, because there's a market for these securities, because the market for government debt is pretty, pretty darn liquid, pretty thick, uh, there are many, many more people who would be more than happy to lend Uncle Sam money in dollars. And mm -hmm. so Uncle Sam doesn't need to do business, so to speak, with people who are demanding, well, I want to be paid back in Bitcoin or I want to be paid back in yen or something like that. There are tons and tons of people in this market. It's not gonna dry up anytime soon, but you could foresee a scenario where supply and demand of dollar-denominated securities is so radically different from what it is right now right. that perhaps that would not be as easy. Uh, I, I find it hard to envision that scenario happening anytime soon, but like you said, it's not written into the fabric of reality. It's just about markets, supply and demand. Now, another element of, of MNT is the idea that, well, if the government's undertaking all of this spending, a, a standard economist like myself, knowing a little bit of macro, would come back and say, well, that, that's likely to be quite inflationary. But MMT comes back with a response saying, well, you know, it's actually not necessarily going to be inflationary. And their response there is not that different from, you know, what, what uh, the mainstream Keynesian uh, macroeconomic models also suggest could could be the case as well. If there's some slack in the economy, government spending isn't necessarily automatically going to be highly inflationary, right? That's the argument. So the modern monetary theorists rely heavily on the concept of idle resources, mm -hmm. the idea that there's a lot of slack in labor markets because so many people are unemployed or out of the labor force who could be brought back into the labor force. So even though they're not formally classified as unemployed, there are still resources there that could be put to use, in this case, uh, labor resources. But then it also applies to all sorts of other idle resources, right? Capital equipment, machines that are currently not being used that could be used. As long as there's any significant excess capacity, according to modern monetary theory, we can put those resources to work without economy-wide increases in prices. And if we continue to see economy-wide price increases anyways, there's always taxes, right? Mm. And so it's a very much functional finance approach to, uh, to inflation, which I don't think that the actual macroeconomic data bears out. I think that what we've learned about inflation is that Milton Friedman was right. It's a monetary phenomenon. Fiscal policy is all is not that important in terms of causing inflation or or dimming down inflation, right? So budget deficits are not necessarily inflation uh, inflationary, budget surpluses are not necessarily deflationary, and so I think that relying too much on the federal government's taxing power to control the inevitable inflation that would result if we actually did try and pay our bills by printing money just wouldn't be that effective. And I just don't think that there's that much idle capacity in the economy that could absorb these trillions of dollars that they want to print to put those resources to work. Now, there's one thing to note in terms of trying to, to reconcile, you know, maybe more mainstream macroeconomics, uh, which draws on Keynesian versus MMT, is that 
when economists talk about full employment, we don't actually mean like zero people unemployed in the economy. And, and, and then we're also taking like the, the size of the labor force, so the labor force participation rate pretty much is, is given. So you could expand a little bit on this. So, so you know, it's not completely implausible to say that even if, the, if mainstream economists would say the economy's at full employment, that there could conceivably at least be some, uh, some other resources that aren't currently being employed. That's exactly right. So when economists talk about the full employment level of output, they mean how much stuff can the economy produce without artificially stepping on the gas with monetary policy so you cause inflation, right? If you print up a bunch of money and spend it and nobody expected you to do that, you can cause a temporary boom in economic activity. And so that will put, push the natural rate of unemployment below its long-term sustainable rate, right? You can, work, uh, you can work overtime at your job. You can run your machines harder. You can do all that temporarily, but eventually there are long-run costs associated with that. So when an economist says the natural rate of unemployment, they actually mean something in the neighborhood of four to four and a half percent unemployment. And the reason for that is some unemployment is actually economically okay. People are between jobs, they're leaving one job so they can focus on searching for another. There's natural turnover in the economy. Mm -hmm. The skills that we're going to need tomorrow are not necessarily as the skills that we're going to need today, so we gotta train our workforce. There are all sorts of reasons other than the business cycle that there can be some unemployment in the economy. And counter-cyclical policy, what economists call the kinds of policies that are intended to fight the business cycle, can't really do much about that. Uh, now, to be fair to modern monetary theorists, they would reject that. They would see any persistent unemployment as intolerable from an ethical perspective, and they would also regard it as something that economic uh, printing press running can and should fix. And if you push many people who say they believe in modern monetary theory, when it comes down to it, they'll just flat out admit, look, we're willing to tolerate historically high levels of inflation if it comes to that, if it means getting unemployment as close to zero as possible. So mm -hmm. kudos to them for their honesty. I just don't necessarily think that it's going to work out the way they hope. Well, as you mentioned, like the, the next part of the, the story would be like, okay, you know, the spending might, it probably isn't gonna be inflationary because we have these idle resources. But if there are, if we get to a point, and, and I think, you know, uh, Professor Kelton in her book actually mentions, you can't do this in, indefinitely. You can't spend an infinite amount of money. There is some limit to this. If we do get inflation, you, you already mentioned this, but I'd like you to expand on this. Um, MMT suggests that we could fight inflation through taxes. Uh, so explain how that, that might work for us. Yeah, so once upon a time uh, in the middle part of the 20th century, fiscal policy was regarded as the primary driver of what economists call aggregate demand, which basically means the total flow of income in currently valued dollars through the economy, the, the, the purchasing power or income of the economy as a whole. Mm -hmm. And in the short run, that's actually very important for determining the amount of real stuff that we have at our disposal, right? The amount of cars, the amount of laptops, the amount of uh, food, clothing, real things that actually make us wealthier. Over the decades, we learned that taxes just don't do a very good job of dampening inflation and budget surpluses also don't do a very good job of dampening inflation, and budget deficits don't necessarily cause inflation. It's really about the money supply on the one hand and how fast that money gets spent, the average rate of turnover of a dollar over a given month, a given year, whatever your time period in question is. 
And so because what we call fiscal policy, taxing and spending decisions, really doesn't affect the money supply and it really doesn't affect, except maybe a little bit, uh, the rate of monetary turnover, persistent inflation is not going to respond all that much to changes in taxes and spending. At the end of the day, if you want to figure out why your economy has persistent inflation year over year, and I'm not talking about like a one-time 5% jump in the price level, right? I'm talking about prices growing at five plus percent year over year over year over year for a long period of time. There's one reason for that and one reason for that only, and that's someone's running the printing presses. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for our MMT, this gets into, you know, I guess ground that would be very uh, frightening for ma- mainstream economists, because as you mentioned, uh, uh, going back to Milton Friedman, we're trained to think that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. And then particularly in the instances historically where we've seen things like hyperinflation, that's come from governments trying to fund themselves through money creation, right? And, and, and you know, when, when MI, MMT is getting closer to monetize, you know, we're gonna monetize, in effect, monetize the debt, and, and we're in effect using money creation to fund all of this government spending, this is, and once we start see inflation start, this is getting you know, to be a situation that, again, a lot of economists would point to and say, well, that's how hyperinflation have started in the past, right? Yeah, so most of the time you have, well, actually, I would go out and say that every single time that you have a hyperinflation, it's because governments have turned to the printing press to try and finance themselves. Once you get hooked on that, it's very, very hard to get off. I don't necessarily think that that would be the result in the United States. We have a whole bunch of other political and economic institutions that might push back on that. But nonetheless, inflation does not have to be in hyperinflation levels in order for it to have a dragging effect on the economy. Mm -hmm. Even if all prices on average are going up at 5% per year, 7% per year, they're not all going up at the same rate. They're not all going up at the same magnitude. And so you have to figure out if you're a household, if you're a business owner, what's actually happening to the relative prices of the goods I care about. When all prices are going up and unpredictably so, calculating economically, right? Budgeting for your family, planning long-term capital expenditures if you're a business, that becomes really difficult because you simply don't know how much the goods and services you want to purchase are going to cost in the future in dollar terms, right? And so we call this in economics, the signal extraction problem. Mm -hmm. Prices are information. Inflation throws a wrench into the pricing process by diminishing the quality of information that we can infer from market prices. And that can happen even at relatively low levels of inflation. Um, We also have to point out a secondary consequence of inflation in terms of a drag on economic activity. This one is more just a feature of the tax code. Pretty much no US taxes are indexed to an inflation, right? They're denominated in nominal dollars rather than inflation adjusted dollars. So if there's a bunch of inflation in the economy, everybody gets pushed up into higher tax brackets, mm-hmm. households, businesses, corporations, and the more income, the more purchasing power that's siphoned off through taxes, the larger are the welfare costs and the drags in the economy, right? We're redistributing resources from the private sector where they tend to be reasonably efficiently employed and giving them to Uncle Sam where frankly they are not so efficiently employed. And so because of that peculiar feature of our tax system where you have bracket creep caused by inflation, that can that can have some really nasty economic consequences, especially with respect to corporate taxation, right? Because that's when you get long-term investments that are supposed to fuel economic growth. And mm-hmm. if we get bracket creep with corporate taxes, that might not necessarily happen. No, one thing that, that MMT talks about is that, you know, 
if you have to pay taxes, and this, this, this I guess, is, gets to their argument as to how taxes might be able to take, if we have too much money in the economy, we could take it out of the economy through taxes and, and, and diffuse inflation. And what they mentioned is that, well, you, you have to pay taxes using dollars. And, and I think you, you, you've written about uh, some cases where historically it, there were some governments, uh, state governments in the United States that funded themselves in, in, in this fashion, putting out, in effect, putting out the, their own currency, putting out a currency that then had to be used to pay taxes. And you take the, you know, you in effect take that currency out of circulation when people pay their taxes because they have to pay it in, in the currency. So ex explain this a little bit for us, Sarah. Right. So the idea that you can create a demand for a fiat currency simply by taxing it is not new, actually. You can find it in Adam Smith. He wrote about it in The Wealth of Nations in 1776. So in many ways, uh, 76 was an auspicious year for America. There's a lot going on then. So looking back at U.S. history, it's kind of ironic that the best evidence that we have that there might actually be something to MMT is the colonial governments back when you know the 13 states were colonies of Great Britain and then the early years of statehood when they were independent. And in a lot of ways, uh, those governments did turn to something like the printing presses to finance themselves. In the late 18th century, you gotta understand, it's actually very hard to levy taxes on a population. First of all, in the American colonies and in the early years of the Republic, precious metals were actually pretty scarce. There wasn't a lot of silver coinage and pretty much no gold coinage. So it was hard to get your hands on that. There was a large rural population, right? Not very many people, uh, even in percentage terms, were living in what we would consider big cities. So if you're an 18th century tax collector, you pretty much have to go door to door to try and get resources from people. And let's remember that the Americans are pretty rowdy people when it comes to their taxes. There's a good chance that they'll pull a rifle on you. So this yeah. is not by any means easy to do. But you still need to get resources to render government, right? The, the public sector has to have some resources to do what it needs to do. How does it get them? The answer is it can write up paper liabilities and put them into circulation promising to redeem them and retire them later. And so the whole reason that you can get people to accept them today is because we promise to accept them in discharge for tax obligations tomorrow. So by artificially creating that demand for paper money, the degree to which the public is willing to use and transact that money represents the degree to which the public is really willing to give the government a zero interest loan, mm -hmm. right? When you hold a liability denominated on somebody, you're letting someone borrow your purchasing power works the exact same way as with a bank as it does a government. Whoever the liability is drawn on, you're loaning them money. And for the most part, colonists and early citizens were happy to do this because, again, physical commodity money was scarce, and so it helped to have a little bit of paper as a circulating medium. And the fact that these were going to be retired later on through taxes ultimately did make, ensure that there was some demand to hold them and use them until they would ultimately be retired. Now, this can work at a small scale, which is why it worked in the 18th century colonies turned states. I am very, very skeptical it can work at a national scale, mm -hmm. right? Taxing dollars in an economy of 300 million plus people with a bunch of complicated financial transactions happening every day is fundamentally not the same thing as running this system on a comparatively small scale uh, way back in the day. And so I think what we know today about the relationship between ta taxation and inflation is that as the American economy is currently constituted, you're just not gonna have that much of a dampening effect by levying taxes 
on dollars unless you truly make them punitive in their levels. And of course, that's going to have some nasty consequences too in terms of disturbing economic behavior. And so it's kind of ironic that the time for modern monetary theory may have come and passed already. It, it served its purpose. Something like it was put into practice in the late colonial slash early statehood period. Uh, but economic changes sent in the hundreds of years since have made this a thoroughly impractical proposal. So, and actually here, it seems like, you know, when we get through this tale, we've almost gotten around to say, okay, we, uh, MMTers uh, think, well, we, we, we clearly don't, there's no appetite for hefty tax raises to pay for the Green New Deal or other types of spending, so we can get around it with borrowing. So let's just borrow and don't worry about it, and, and, and then we can create money. And, well, and then if we need to, we'll, we'll impose the taxes. So, so it's sort of like putting it backwards, but there's a, a good chance, you know, it sort of sounds like we could get that same thing of, well, we'll have to pay heavy taxes to pay for all this spending to begin with. So just uh, wrapping up here, we have just a little bit of time left. I mean, do you really see this as a, a, a coherent economic theory or, or is it more of a, a political, uh, political argument? Yeah, I think it's number two. Because if you read the arguments of people who, who believe in MMT and think that we should switch our public financing methods to just printing money, there's no real attempt to describe how the economy works. There's no real attempt to make new predictions about economic variables that we care about. There's no real attempt to get into the causal relationships of what determines unemployment, what determines inflation. It's mostly, it's more accounting than economics actually. They start from the simple and obvious truth that you can't default on your debt if that debt is denominated in a currency you control, and then leap from that to the conclusion, therefore, we should run the printing presses to actually finance the government. This is actually a perfect example of why people shouldn't confuse accounting and economics. And this is very hard when you do macroeconomics especially because we so often start from accounting identities. Right. Think about the way that we define GDP, consumer spending plus investment plus government spending plus net exports. Or think about the way that we define the money supply or the relationship of nominal income to the money supply. These are all, strictly speaking, accounting identities, things that are true by construction. But you need yeah. to do some actual economic theoretical work to get from there to a theory about how this world actually works. Okay. And MMT advocates have only done number one and don't realize that they haven't yet done number two. Well, thanks very much for coming on and, and, and talking to us about this uh, very important, I guess, timely issue. And thanks for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. Thanks, Dan. It was great. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. 